just to recap then where we've come from uh, in the series so far. And Paul, in Colossians 1, embraces the supremacy of Christ. He talks about the supremacy of Christ, and Gary dealt with that, and Willem a little bit in his preach last week. Um, and he went into Colossians 2. And, uh, and the supremacy of Christ we saw in our, in our Hebrews um, series um, showed us that Christ is superior to the angels. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to Moses and Aaron. He's a better temple. He's a better covenant. And he's our high priest. And he's the perfect sacrifice. So how do we respond to that? We have to respond in faith. And we need to have a clear understanding of what faith is. Because our faith brings spiritual fullness in Christ. And Hebrews 10.38 reminds us and tells us that our faith is sustained by God's faithfulness. In Colossians 2, then, Paul deals with uh, the preeminence of Christ over false religion. So he starts off with the supremacy of Christ, and then he starts moving into um, the first of his three warnings, and and warning not to move away from Christ, that Christ is supreme to any other beliefs or philosophies. And he focuses on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus over the false prophets and wants to raise the the danger of false teaching. We know that our faith is not a philosophy. We, We don't do religion. We don't do philosophy. It's a way of life. And Paul doesn't want Christians to be misled. So let's see what he says. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having dismissed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Thus said the Lord, Amen. We all said Amen. So let's go into it in a bit more detail. Uh, Paul starts off by uh, reminding them how their salvation began. And he says, 
as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, you've been taught of the simple. Louise, thank you for these, these slides. They're amazing. The best part of the preach. You've done such an amazing job. Sorry, I forgot you. But I had to talk to you before you go. So he says, as you therefore have received Christ the Lord. In other words, you've been taught of the supremacy of Christ. He is risen as Lord. He's been placed in authority over all things, ruling everything. Paul says, you know the gospel and accepted it in your heart. Now receive and firmly embrace Jesus uh, as Lord. So how should they react to that? Um, follow Christ, submit to him, learn from his example. And these are all true, but Paul says, walk in him. And right here, he summarizes the central point of the book. These three words, walk in him, walk in Christ. It's a biblical metaphor for Christian living. And it's the essential description of Christian life. If you're a Christian, you need to understand that you're in union with Christ. You're joined by the Spirit and truly in Christ. And our faith has joined us as one in Christ. Steve Meister calls this the drive train of Christian life. And our walk in uh, Christ is accomplished by being established in the faith, just as you were taught. Established in the faith. Never move beyond the gospel. You grow deeper and deeper into it and you grow from the gospel. Don't move left. Don't move right. As we go up and grow up in, in Christ and grow deeper in his word, we abound more and more in thanksgiving. And that's evidence that we're living in Christ. Exactly what Gary preached in, in the first preach in this series, giving thanks. Because thanksgiving is used many, many times in the scripture. And it's not dependent on mercies and gifts or circumstance. Paul talks absolutely. You will abound in thanksgiving. It's an outcome of a principle, a truth, and that truth is walk in him, and you will abound in thanksgiving. You'll be grateful. And faith in the gospel means relying on him. <clears throat> faith and rely are, are similes. And if we've received the gospel, we've received Christ as Lord and Savior, then we need to rely on him, trust in him, everything that you think about, in any circumstance, lean on him for life. Because he's always reliable. <laughs> Hebrews 10.38 told us that. And this will cause and explain constant gratitude, even if we're going through tough times, even if we're going through death. Which means in verse 10 and 11, the Christian life is about always going back to Christ, continually returning to Christ for life. Gary spoke about rumble strips. Some cars have functions called Lane departure alert. Greg, you know, we know about that. And it's, it's, it's a function that a car has now that if you start wandering off, it pulls, the steering wheel pulls you back and starts vibrating like a rumble strip and, and you hear all sort, sorts of alarms. But Greg, maybe you can preach on that. So it pulls you back to the straight and narrow and, uh, and, and that's what Gary was talking about. Um, Paul's first warning in the letter is to beware. 
Don't deviate from Christ. Don't float. Keep awake. Don't get sloppy. Don't get sleepy. Just to echo Bruce's preach a few weeks ago. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So he's a head of all principality of power. We in him, we head of principality and power. It's under our feet. He openly warns about plausible arguments against Christ and starts at the root of Gnosticism. That word. You're good at words when you sit there, not yet. The word philosophy here is a broad term. It means a paradigm or a worldview, and it embraces the human condition. So he's saying, see to that it that no one takes you captive, enslaves you, traps you, or kidnaps you by a deceitful view of the world, by the way you organize and think about life and reality. Any worldview is empty, he says, and deceitful if it's rooted in the traditions of men, the deception of demons, and rejecting Christ. And we all grow up in traditions, and we condition to ideas and ways of the world as we grow up. That's normal. But traditions are ultimately rooted in the thoughts of man, and really no place to, to rest your life. So Paul says, be wary of the views of the world that are according to the way men think. And he goes deeper, according to the basic principles of the world meaning the spiritual forces, the principalities and powers. And we heard about the, those principalities and powers in the What Does God Want series. And I think we're going to hear about them next week as well. Protector and Lord, Jesus. So how does it, uh, the enemy deceive or cheat us? He simply does what he's always done. He tries to persuade us to think that God's a liar and you should just do what you want. Did God really say exactly what he did in the garden? And that's the original deception and it's the root of all human traditions. Do what you want. You can't trust God. Trust yourself. But the deepest reason why any worldview is empty and deceitful is the actual rejection of Christ. Simply ignoring the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and all that he's done and doing to bring sinners back to him. Beware. Paso. Christ stands in judgment of every teaching. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. God himself has fully dwelt amongst us in a real body. God has made himself understandable and accessible by becoming one of us in Christ. Paul aggressively addresses the Gnostic thought that Jesus was not physical and just a spirit. Gnosticism, Gnosticism, that word. 
that word. It's the last time I'm using it in this preach. It starts with paradigms or worldviews driven by human hearts, elevating the human spirit above the Holy Spirit. The truth is, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. All the fullness of salvation has come to you and been completed in you for, uh, for you in Christ. You don't need any other fullness to bring you to God, nothing else than what he's done on the cross. We've been completed by our union with him, filled with the one who is the head of all rulers and authorities. Christ rules the powers and authorities of the world. You don't need their teaching. Steve Meister says, any teaching that says you need more than what God has done in joining you to himself in Christ is to be firmly rejected. Anything that suggests we need more for salvation than Christ. Anything. So we must test all things according to Christ. All assumptions that we have, all our perceived ideas that we think are truths, put them up against Christ. Our values. Are you willing to evaluate them in the light of Christ? Are you willing to return to Christ and test your thoughts? Often, I return to Christ just to affirm my paradigms. That's wrong. It's presumptuous. Don't be sloppy. Stop fishing. Not always. Be filled in Christ means freedom in him. Because in him you were also circumcised. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign that God gave to his people to show that they were separate from the world, um, that they were dedicated to him. It was supposed to be a reality to signify a real dedication to God, not just a sign. And we know this wasn't the case for most of history. Uh, throughout his word, God rebukes him. And in De Deuteronomy 10, he says, Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and don't be stubborn. And changing their hearts was impossible. So God made a promise in Deuteronomy, the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord, Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Here God promises to make that sign a reality in the hearts of his people. He promised to Israel that he would make that sign a reality. But the greatest gift is in Colossians 1 verse 27. What does it say? Even the Gentiles have Christ in you. So whoever you are in Christ, your heart has been circumcised. Paul talks about the circumcision made without hands. In other words, not physical, not under human power, with human hands. Your heart has been circumcised by God. It's been changed by God. In Christ, God gives you a new heart that belongs to him. A heart that feels for him, a, God that, a heart that wants him, and a heart that loves him. And Paul tells us in verse 11 and 12 how that's possible. In him you, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In union with Christ, you joined in all the things that he's done for you. 
uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection aren't just part, past acts that he performed for us. In union with him, they are acts that he did with us, acts in which we participate. In him, verse 11, we've put off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. We've died, we've been buried, we've raised again with him. So if you join to Christ, you have died, you've been buried and raised in Christ by putting off the body of sin of the flesh. Jesus literally stripped off his entire body, and that's a vivid description of his death on the cross. He laid down his body of flesh by his death, and that was, this, that was called the circumcision of Christ. He stripped off and surrendered his entire body to the Father. So in Christ you died, you who deserved death, and to be on the cross, suffering God's wrath, you died crucified with Christ. Which means in verse 12 that we were buried. Christ's burial was the seal that he was dead, the assurance of the reality of his death. And baptism seals our union with Christ. We've been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him. Through faith in the working of God, we raised him from the dead. So baptism, uh, the baptism of being immersed in water, is a public declaration of our commitment to Christ. It's a required and inseparable declaration of our commitment to Christ. And it's the seal that we've died in Christ and participated in his death. Are we saying that the act of baptism saves? Never. Never, never. But it expresses the saving uh, faith of Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 23, baptism is a cry of faith to God, an expected and required call to faith. Are the saved required to be baptism, uh, baptized? Without question. To sign and seal that your old self was buried with Christ. So we were buried by baptism, fully covered, immersed. The sign of our union with Christ, assured by our testimony of it in our baptism. And also we were raised in Christ. You now have a new life. All of this, Paul says, through the faith in the powerful working of God. Through faith. You've been raised with him, seated in heavenly places where you are joined. That's where you are. The old self died with Jesus, and in his death we've been buried with him and raised to a whole new life. And that's how we've been fulfilled and completed in him that, that we saw in verse 10. We've received all that we need from Christ. We entirely knew, together with all of the resources and the ability that come with the presence of God. How incredible is that? We've got everything that he's got. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
So we're free from the captivities of separation from God, from condemnation of our sins and accusations from the devil. Because apart from Christ, you were dead. You had no life. You had no spiritual heartbeat and no love for him. But God has made us alive with him to a new life in Christ. And that means we are free from condemnation for our sins because he's forgiven us all of our trespassing by cancelling out our debt. So what then is the debt that we owe to God? It's his judgment, judgment for our sins. We owe him judgment for our sins. That record is always there, and it stands against us, stacked against us. You've sinned, you've violated God, you deserve judgment, you must pay, it was coming, the debt stood against us. And we knew this because the word says our conscience accuses us. So what did God do? He cancelled it. He destroyed it. He set it aside and he nailed it to the cross when Christ was nailed to the cross. He paid your record of debt. Christ owed God nothing in terms of judgment. When he was nailed to the cross, our record of debt was nailed to the cross and destroyed. He paid it in full. And that's the heart of the gospel. For if you're not a Christian and you know in your heart the record of death that stands against you, the hope for you is to receive Christ. And that means you become free from accusations. Satan's deceit in the world all hinges on one thing, and that's our sin and how we deal with it. In our sin, the devil wants to tempt us to run from God. Do what you want. You can't trust God. The Bible is an old book. You can't believe it. And when we've done all of that and our record of debt is stacked against us, he'll tell you, you're hopeless. You can't come back to God. Why don't you try and work harder? Why don't you try and earn respect? Earn your way back to God. We're all sinners, but Christ has given us life. He paid our debt. He's disarmed principalities and powers. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And they have nothing else. Triumph means the enemy is shamed. And the people of that time understood that. When a Roman general would walk in after winning a battle, he'd bring along the people that he had defeated, barefoot, tied up, and shamed. They understood that. They understood that language. So Christ's victory parade was on the cross. He led Satan and the ones who seek to lie and destroy in shame in his wake. He's victorious. He put them under his feet on the cross. On that cross, the world and the devil proclaimed Christ is dead. But on that cross, Christ was triumphant. He did all that the Father had sent him to do, victorious in liberating his people of everything that held them captive. Our enemy's real power was defeated on the cross. And if you're in Christ, the devil has no power over you. You're free from condemnation of your sins. When Satan tempts us and the world says, be afraid of, the, of God, the cross says, Yes, you're guilty, but your judgment has been paid for. You don't need to fear him. You're free. 
God is one in Christ. It's over. It's done. I'm free. The reason why identity politics are such a big thing today is because we've forsaken any sense of defined identity in our culture. We've bought a deceitful philosophy of the devil that you can ignore God and do what you want. You can define yourself. So people look for their identity in many things, their own will. For example, regardless of my biology, this is who I am. And no one can say otherwise. The world is a world where everyone defines their own truth. And that always leads you into captivity and enslavement and the lies of the enemy. It leaves people helpless, hopeless, endlessly insecure and angry. And if there's anything wrong with how they define themselves, they literally have nothing, absolutely nothing. And if you don't know who you are, that's terrible. It's not a place to be. Your soul dies. One writer put it this way. Those who fill themselves with themselves remain empty. The devil uses that guilt and despair to drive them further and further away from God. You know help. You've got no hope. And the answer to this we know is always outside of us. It's in Christ, knowing our true identity in him, leaning on him who is our life, remembering him in the face of everything we hear, remembering our freedom in Christ, trusting him and knowing that Christ has defined us. My life is defined by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Because when he died, when he was buried and raised, so was I. <clears throat> the guy before that, he's dead. And he deserved to die. Now, I live in him. Absolutely.